Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. This week, we are beginning Capote's Coterie at the very beginning, investigating Truman Capote's years from 1924 to 1933 and introducing his first collection of Coterie, the group that will be exclusively his. This set is all from Monroeville, Alabama, tiny little town that developed two writing legends, Truman Capote and Harper Lee, famous for her Pulitzer Prize-winning work, To Kill a Mockingbird. Harper Lee is definitely one of Truman's childhood coterie, and will stay his friend throughout many years, but Truman's family you simply have to add into this mix. You will write about what you know, and Truman will write about his mother, Lily Mae Falk, and all of her Falk relatives, Aunt Jenny and Aunt Sook, as well as Jennings, Truman's cousin, and all the neighbors, too. For a tiny town, a lot happens in Monroeville. Before we begin our episode today, I do have a spyglass here with some names of many, many fine folks out there who need a little shout out this week. First to all of you, thank you, thank you for being so patient last week while I had literally no voice. I appreciate all your kind thoughts and well wishes. It really meant a lot to me. Truly big thanks, friends. I appreciate that. Have another shout out here. Librarians! Heather from the DeKalb County Library System saved the day in finding an essential resource for this episode. Thank you, Heather. You really came through in a pinch. You're the best. Want to add on a shout out to two more of our librarian investigators. I will always cheer for the library. Big love to Sarah and Debbie, too. Got a few other thanks to give. Huge thanks to Mark S. and Lawrence B. I got your kind emails. Holy cats. Thank you, friends. Few more here. Gerald and Mama Swan and Lacombe. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your amazing reviews over at Apple Podcasts. Very kind of you. And last but not least, our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Big thanks, love, and praise to Kirsten C., Bess H., Emily, Rory W., Diane S., and Aaron. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support over there and dipping your toes into a little bit fuller of an investigation with our done drops and not done yet episodes too. So grateful to all of y'all, all of our Patreon supporters, and all of our kind friends for all the ways you support Done and Done. What a thrill it is to be here with you again. We're here on episode 100, friends. Can you believe it? Episode 100. Are you ready to begin this journey of Truman Capote and his coterie? We are headed back home today to Monroeville, Alabama, looking into the first eight years and the small town cast of characters that surrounds our very young Truman Capote. Let's investigate. Let's go ahead and enter our man Nick into this 1924 to 1933 time frame. I want to make sure he gets mentioned in this episode. And once we get down to Monroeville, I fear we will not come back to Nick. What is Dominic Dunn doing in this time period? Let's go ahead and put him in the picture. Dominic Dunn, born 13 months after Truman Capote. Dominic Dunn's birthday is October 29th. 1925. And our man Nick, just little boy Nick, really growing up in his Catholic family in the very wasp community of Hartford, Connecticut. Remember, Dominic is the second kid, his mother, uh, an Irish Catholic heiress, and his father, a heart surgeon. Dominic Dunn's grandfather and namesake, 
Dominic Burns, was a grocer turned banker back in 1919. The Dunn's family fortunes before Dominic's birth are improving in the world, but Dominic Dunn, not really a terribly happy child. He loves his mother. They love to share gossip. But Dominic's father and Dominic, not quite that same relationship. Dominic Dunn says that his father cannot stand him, doesn't like anything about him, his different ways, his queerness, his softness, so to speak. Dominic is essentially compared to his older brother, who was the big shot kid. Older brother always did everything right. A few other kids will follow for the Duns, six children in total, four boys and two girls through these years. But here, within 1924 to 1933, Nick, called Nicky by his family, loves reading. His grandpa Burns will pay Nicky and his brother for the books they read. And Nicky, too, loves movies. He loves movie stars. Nicky also loves his Aunt Harriet. Remember, Aunt Harriet lives in California and at one point was a nun, but no one ever talks about that except for all the Dunn children incessantly. No matter, Dominic Dunn loves his Aunt Harriet and he will go to visit her in the mid-1930s and that is the highlight of Dominic Dunn's childhood riding in the tour buses to the homes of the famous stars around town, eating at the Brown Derby. Dominic Dunn begins his true love affair with Hollywood here. It makes an imprint. As we know, Dominic Dunn is going to make it back to Hollywood many years later. But even as a kid, Dominic Dunn knows the world is bigger than Hartford, Connecticut, and he wants a piece of it. There's a little bit of a similar voyage that these two young boys, Truman Capote and Dominic Dunn, will take. They both have odd guy out childhoods, both yearning for something much, much grander than what they see in their day-to-day childhood existence. When Dominic Dunn begins writing what will be the comeback novel in his third act, the two Mrs. Grenvilles. It is to Truman Capote that our man Nick goes for source for a fictional narrator. Dominic Dunn is writing a Ramona Clay. Truman Capote wrote them too. The alias Basil Plant is what our man Nick uses as his stand-in for Truman Capote within the two Mrs. Grenvilles. Basil Plant. Holy cats. The Basil part, a delicious twist from Truman Capote's fictional character, Abdil Harris, in To Kill a Mockingbird. Plant, well, yeah, Truman Capote was completely in that Woodward circle. Truman Capote would have been a perfect narrator and plant, so to speak, being so associated with that crowd. I really do love the nod here to To Kill a Mockingbird, again, that novel rocked a generation. Truman and Harper are childhood friends. Harper Lee is one of Capote's earliest coterie. Truman Capote is going to live with his Aunt Jenny and his Aunt Sook. There are few characters that all live with Aunt Jenny. She's very much the matriarch of the family. Aunt Jenny's home is next door to the home of Harper Lee and her family. Truman, though, isn't limited in his coterie to his aunts and Nell Lee. He's going to have a few more. First and foremost, the imprint that matters probably more than any other one in Truman's life, Lily May. Lily May Falk. Truman's mother. Again, the very first and the most important Truman had her before he had any of them. And Lily May will stay influential in Truman's life until her death in 1954. And honestly, still very influential in his life right up to his death in 1984. Lily May Falk is 
very much the inspiration for Truman Capote's Holly Go Lightly and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Certainly, these two characters, Holly and Lily Mae, are shaded by a very different time and location setting, but there is a lot of Lily Mae's background that will remind you of Holly Go Lightly's origin story, the orphan kid who escapes to the big city. And Lily Mae, y'all, doesn't really have it easy, no doubt. Her story will have a great effect on her son. Not only her story, but her presence or absence as well. In this episode, I really do want to look at Truman Capote in these early childhood years. Who is he around? What was his life like? What are the main impacts to this tender child brought on by this tiny town, super connected into family and community, but also knowing, as Truman does, that he is so different and doesn't really belong here. Who is in Truman's coterie that he collects from these early years? What are Truman's years like from 1924 to Lily Mae coming to take Truman to New York City after finally landing herself a rich husband in about 1933. Oh, Lily Mae, the 19-year-old mother of a very different kind of kid, stuck into a life that she doesn't really want. The story is one that tells itself through time, but Lily Mae's story could be perhaps a little bit more complex. Because Lily Mae's story is the story of the Falk family. They are all so connected. There's a wonderful resource I'm drawing on heavily for this episode. It is a book called A Bridge of Childhood, Truman Capote's Southern Years. The author is Marianne M. Motes. Motes has cultivated an incredible work based on years of knowing the Falk and Carter families, including Jennings Carter. Jennings Carter is the son of Lily May's sister, Mary Ida. Jennings and Truman Capote are cousins. Jennings is the source for Jim in To Kill a Mockingbird. I truly don't know when I have enjoyed stories so much. Again, a big recommendation. All the stars for A Bridge of Childhood. Truman Capote's Southern Years by Marianne M. Motes. All sources are available for you to check out over at doneanddone.com if you're interested in those. But tremendous thanks to Marianne Motes for these gemstones of stories that we're going to get into today. Let's go ahead and set the stage for what Monroeville is like and a little bit about Lily Mae's people who will be Truman Capote's people too. The unfolding of this family saga, I believe, gives you a wonderful setup into Truman's origin story, as your origin story never really does begin with you. From Marianne M. Motes, Having known the Falk family for more than 25 years and known Truman through them, I realized that even though biographies had been written about Truman's life, the whole story had not been told. Very little has been written about the early life of Truman Streckfuss persons, Truman Capote. Nell Lee models the peculiar little boy Dill after Truman in To Kill a Mockingbird. But since her novel is fiction, doubt remains as to how close the character really is to Truman. So we turn to Truman for answers. He gives us glimpses of himself and several of his works, other voices, other rooms, the grass harp, the Thanksgiving visitor, a Christmas memory, and one Christmas. Except for these mostly fictional works and a few comments and interviews, however, that's all we know about the little boy who was to grow up and become Truman Capote writer. Fortunately, Jennings Falk Carter has shared another view. Truman was different 
from the very beginning. He had a marvelous gift with words, and so he began to write. First, the truth. Then the truth enlarged with fantasy. He scribbled notations in a small notebook he carried all the time. Words to describe how a tree looked draped across a creek, a male and female dog tied together in mating, how the sunlight looked on a pile of leaves, says Jennings Falk Carter. Jennings continues, He was always writing down descriptions of things. He trained with a pencil and paper in the same way that a musician works with notes or an artist with colors. Another thing we know about Truman Capote is that he was very close to his Monroeville family. He may claim to have been lonely and misunderstood, but he was very much cared for by his Falk relatives at least as long as he was a child. As he grew into manhood, he strayed from their southern traditional family values, and this was hard for family members to accept. He maintained a close relationship with his aunt, Mary Ida Carter, throughout his life. Home, to him, was the comfortable Carter farmhouse on Drury Road, about two miles from Monroeville. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Marianne Motes really does know her subject from all the folks that were around Truman Capote in these years. I think she does a beautiful job here of taking us back to what Monroeville, Alabama was like at that time. Let's go ahead and set the stage of this sleepy southern town from Marianne Motes. The little town of Monroeville, Alabama, population around 7,500, is known as the hub. It's a hub because in any direction you must drive for two hours to reach a town of any size. Selma to the north, Montgomery to the northeast, Pensacola to the southeast, Mobile to the southwest. The town sits on red clay hills, topped with tall pines and tangled underbrush, still very much like it did when four-year-old Truman Capote moved there in 1928. His mother, Lily Mae Falk Persons, brought him home to Monroeville and abandoned him to the care of some older relatives, all eccentric in their own way. These relatives, the rural atmosphere, and isolation left indelible marks on Truman, However, he used them all in much of his writing, a Christmas memory, a Thanksgiving visitor, and guests. Monroeville was the setting for The Grass Harp and was Noon City in his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. He even began the latter book with, quote, The traveler must make his way by the best means he can, unquote. Since Truman often came to Monroeville via car over bumpy roads, frequently passing farmers rattling into town in their big old mule-drawn wagons or on trains that rumbled and clanked through in the night, he knew how difficult it was to get to the scruffy little town. Although much is known about Truman after he left Monroeville 
and moved permanently to New York in the early 1940s. Very little is known about his childhood years in pre-Depression times, during the Depression, and immediately following. In the rural South in those years, women were still having babies in their homes. Neighbors lived close together. If somebody shouted in the street, people poked their heads out to see what the commotion was all about. Everybody had a turnip patch, chicken coop, hogs, and mules in his backyard. People hung out their wash to flap on the line and thought nothing of it. Most everybody in town had a colored woman. Blacks were referred to as coloreds back then to cook and wash. Again, I'm quoting from Marianne Motes here. This is a very different, pre-segregated southern town. Continuing from Motes, she walked from Clausel, the quarters, about a mile west of town. She was a highly prized member of the family, and no one would have dared tried to hire her away. Colored men mowed the white folks' yards with push mowers or kept weeds down with sling blades. They cleaned wood floors with corn shuck mops, swept the walkways with dogwood brush brooms, and shined windows with ammonia-soaked newspapers. Most everybody in town had electricity, running water in their kitchen sinks, and indoor plumbing. A few houses had telephones. Callers got the other party on the line by calling the operator. The courthouse was the central attraction in town. The two-story red brick structure stood like a tattered fortress in the middle of the square. A silver cupola perched on top of the building held four large clocks that tick-tocked when they wanted to. Old men gathered on the lawn to talk, play checkers, and spit tobacco juice. A horse hitching rail stood beneath a row of broad-topped oak trees that hung over the streets. None of the streets around the square or in town were paved. They were either red mud or coppery dust, depending on the weather. In the streets was a strange mixture of horse-drawn wagons, people afoot, and a few automobiles dodging about. Men and women walked to town in the morning, listened for the noon sawmill whistle to tell them to go home for their main meal, then walked back to town for the afternoon's business. In some ways, it was a typical little town with a grocery that would deliver, a drugstore with a soda fountain, a livery where farmers could park their horses and wagons, a bank, a furniture store, an ice house, a cotton warehouse, a merchantile store, and some churches, all within a stone's throw of one another. Everybody knew everybody else and everybody else's business. Cotton and lumber were the big industries. The gin was just two blocks from town. Wagons piled high with cotton came from miles around to get the cotton ginned, graded, baled, sold, and stored. At ginning time in late summer and early fall, the air was thick with white cotton fluff. People were moving into Monroeville in the late 1920s and needed lumber for houses so the sawmill stayed busy. And this is where Moats really gets into it. Who are Lily May's people? Where do we begin with the Falks and end with the folks in Truman Capote's immediate family? Who is he growing up with? Marianne Moats does an incredible job detailing out in lyrical Southern form the history of this family. This is fascinating. From Moats. Truman Capote's Falk ancestors already had a firm toehold in Monroe County when he came to live there. They ran farms on the outskirts of town without electricity or running water. They were hard-working, pride-filled people who came to Monroeville right after 
the War of 1812. Family stories have it that royal French ancestors shaped the hands that gripped the plow. Maybe so. Nobody has been able to prove it. William C. Falk, born in 1819, is on the line of Falks that leads to Truman on his mother's side. One of William's sons was Seban Jackson Falk, born in 1836. The spelling on that is S-E-A-B-O-N. With Seban, a run of hard luck and tragedy entered the family, culminating in the death of Truman Capote. When the war between the states began, Seban left his wife and infant son, Seban Jr., in Monroeville and went off with his brother, William, to fight for the Southern cause. Seban didn't make it back. He was killed in the Battle of Atlanta. William scraped by and limped home to the farm on a leg that never healed. He and his wife, Samantha, took in Seban's wife and baby son, Seban Jackson Jr., while they were raising their nephew, Seban Jr., in those hard Reconstruction times, they, this would be William and Samantha, had their own family to feed. John Byron, known as Bud, Nanny Rumbly, known as Sook, Virginia Hurd, known as Jenny, Caroline Elizabeth, known as Callie, Howard, and Mary. Home was a partly log house with two big rooms, and a dog trot down the middle, and enough red dirt to grow a few bales of cotton and some corn. They had lost most of their land to taxes, but Samantha vowed to regain it. Pride and determination kept her struggling against foreclosure. Where William rocked on the front porch, cussed Yankees, and drank laudanum and alcohol for his leg ailment, Samantha went to work in the fields and tried to raise enough food to keep the family from starving. In addition to cotton and corn, they raised a few cows, pigs, and some vegetables. Taking the children with her, Samantha stuffed moist leaves under their bonnets to keep them from having a heat stroke, and they all worked until they were about to drop in their tracks. In the Falk family, the struggle for survival was even harder than for most because patriarchs were few. Most of the men either died early or suffered from alcohol or drug addictions. Thus the women became the ones to hold the family together. First, it was Samantha, then her daughter, Jenny Falk. Jenny is the one who would take in baby Truman and raise him. Seban Jr., meanwhile, married when he was 17. He and his wife had two sons, Arthur and Wingate. Arthur was to be Truman's grandfather. Seban's wife died in childbirth when Wingate was born, so Seban took his young sons and moved to Laurel, Mississippi, and went to work for a turpentine company. Soon, Seban contracted tuberculosis and died, leaving Arthur, aged four, and Wingate, aged two, in the piney woods with some ruffians he had worked for. When Samantha got word that Seban was dead, she sent her son Bud to Mississippi to get the little boys and bring them back to her. Here is the second generation of orphans that were raised by the same women in the William Jasper Falk household. Family stories have it that Arthur was probably a hellion from day one. Some have wondered if he was an outlaw, others say he was shrewd. As a youth, he got himself slammed in the Monroe County Jail for stealing an ox. He ran a livery, bought property, and always seemed to have plenty of money during hard times. At age 17, he began delivering mail along a route 
linking Monroeville to Mexia and Flomaden. He overnighted at the home of Preacher Hendricks in Mexia. The preacher's eldest daughter, Edna May, and Arthur eloped to Bruton, about 60 miles away, in 1904. She was 27, and he was 18. In January 1905, their first child, Lily May, was born. She was to be Truman's mother. Arthur and Edna May's other surviving children were Mary Ida, Marie, Seban, and Lucille. When Lily May was 10, Arthur, then age 29, became ill with tuberculosis. A doctor advised him that he was very contagious and that his children could get the disease, so he had a tent erected in his backyard. He lived there for several weeks before he died. Three years after Arthur Falk died, his widow, Edna Marie, got sick and went to the hospital in Selma. Several days later, Jenny Falk took the children to the hospital to see their mother and accompany her home. But tragedy seemed to have a never-ending grip on the Falk children. Edna Marie hemorrhaged and died in the hospital room while Jenny and the children all stood helplessly looking on. Jenny, meanwhile, had moved to Monroeville and opened a millinery shop. Her business prospered, and soon she had enough money to buy two lots. She built a large mercantile store on one lot and a house in town for Bud, Sook, and Callie on the other. Howard and Mary did not move with them because Howard was grown and had moved out, and Mary was married. After Edna Marie died, Jenny took the children back home with her to the new house on South Alabama Avenue. She gave the baby Lucille to Howard and his wife, who were childless. Arthur Falk's children thus became the third generation of orphans to be raised in the same house with Jenny. Jenny took control over Arthur's sizable estate. He had left over $8,000 in cash, a livery business, a home, and 360 acres, plus a gasoline and oil franchise, a fortune in those days. Lily May, Truman's mother, was 14 when she moved in with Jenny and was never happy at her house. Jenny was a harsh woman who ruled with an iron hand and Lily May was a tempestuous, angry young woman who needed love and attention. She had lost both her parents and her home. Shouting matches were common between Jenny and Lily May. Jenny tried to cool things between them by sending Lily May away to school, first to a finishing school in Bruton, then to Troy State Teachers College, but Lily May could not adjust. She wasn't happy in either place, so she returned home to Monroeville to decide her next move. When Arch Persons roared into Monroeville in his chauffeur-driven Packard touring car, both Lily May and Jenny could see the end in sight for their misery. Lily May saw dollar signs dancing around this blue-blood attorney from a prominent Alabama family. The fact that he was a schemer who never practiced law a day in his life was a point to be reckoned with later. Arch and Lily May charmed each other. Arch was captivated by Lily May's striking brunette beauty. She was elated at the idea of marrying money and social position. They wed in a big ceremony at Jenny's house in 1923. Lily May was 18 years old. After the wedding, Lily May and Arch moved into the Monteleone Hotel in New Orleans, and for a time they lived in a grand style. And this hotel in New Orleans is famous, y'all. Opened in 1886 on Royal Street, five generations of 
French Quarter hoteling there. This place is legendary. Back to Moats. The heart of the city, with its busy French Quarter-filled shops, restaurants, and people, was exciting to a country girl. But Arch's job, traveling between New Orleans and St. Louis with Strukfa Steamship Company, took him away on the boat for weeks at a time, and Lily May spent too much time alone. To compound her problems, she soon learned she was pregnant. She found herself spending more and more time back in Monroeville in the very environment she had sought to escape. She did not come home to a loving family accepting of their grown child's marital difficulties. Now that she was an adult, they held her at arm's length, a family characteristic that had run through several generations and would also be their attitude toward Truman. Jenny gave Lily Mae food and a roof over her head, but, but there was no love, warmth, or family support during this difficult time. The family didn't want her back in the fold. Lily May appealed to her brother, Seban, for help, but he was a youth and was unable to support her. Unhappily, she retreated to New Orleans in the late summer to await her child's birth. During the weeks that followed, she felt trapped and very much alone at just 19 years old. Lily May, you want to feel for her, right? This is how Truman Streckfuss Persons comes on into the world September 30th, 1924 in New Orleans on the tail end of a weather event. Truman makes his entrance at the end of Tropical Storm Number 8 in 1924. Marianne Motes will continue a little bit about this family <laughs> to which little Truman comes into. And so it was into this family of noble blue bloods that Truman Capote was born, Truman Streckfuss Persons, in Toro Infirmary in New Orleans on September 30th, 1924. Five generations of Falks had taken their first breaths in the pine and oak-filled woods of Monroe County, Alabama, but Truman awoke to a new destiny. He would never hitch a mule, plow the end of a long, hot row, or chop cotton. His would be a new type of struggle. His crucible would be writing. The merciless master, he would say of his work. He would want family, love, and a secure environment, but he wanted them on his terms. When he broke with traditional family values, the family turned their backs on him the way they turned their backs on his mother. Even his intellectual genius could not help him find a way to return to the fold. Although Lily Mae was strong in some ways, she knew nothing about nurturing a little baby. She didn't know how to be a mother. After Truman was born, she thought nothing of leaving him alone, sleeping peacefully in his crib in the Montleone Hotel while she went out shopping with friends. But as he grew, so did his demands. He was awake more. He needed more attention. He needed his mother. Nonetheless, she continued the practice of leaving him, now locking him, sometimes screaming in a closet, so she could go out. In later years, he remembered being abandoned there, desperately banging on the door to get out, all the while screaming at the top of his lungs. Lily May also felt trapped and desperate. She wanted a career, a new way of life, and freedom from the responsibility of mothering. By this time, there was no marriage, so she separated from Arch and filed for divorce. When Lily May arrived in Monroeville with Truman for an indefinite stay, she reasoned that Jenny had plenty of room. A parlor, dining room, large kitchen, bathroom, and several bedrooms with double beds in each one served the family well. Each room had a fireplace and high ceilings, but Jenny wasn't interested in having long-term guests. 
She insisted that Lily may cook and clean to earn her keep. Lily May stayed only a few months, then hocked her diamond rings to Jenny for some money and took off for New York to find a job. She left Truman behind. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Bravros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. Lily May. Nopin out of Monroeville. Not into it. Looking to find something much bigger than this tiny, sleepy town. Lily May has seen it. She's been there. She's going to go to New York City to make her dreams come true. Leaves little Truman, four years old, with Aunt Jenny. Now looking in after the fourth generation of orphans within the Falk family. Who's the family that Truman is growing up with at this time? Mostly the same folks that Lily May grew up with. Like, you have to think she knows what she's doing here. Whatever she is doing. Lily May grew up here, leaving Truman here, too, with these characters. Let's introduce the whole darn family and Truman's first coterie. From Marianne Motes. When Truman first went to Monroeville in 1928, the yard was walled in by a wooden picket fence. Later, Jenny had it torn down to make way for a four-foot-tall fence made out of limestone rocks gathered from a nearby creek. The fence, colloquially known as Horsebone Rock, was stacked into a form, cemented, then capped off with smooth cement. In places, the rock sides looked like hunks of animal hip bones poking out. Inside the house, a strange jumble of personalities fused together as tightly as these fence rocks. It was a family entangled with one another, with members adopting various roles for self-preservation. Like the rock fence she had so painstakingly overseen, Jenny was the bulwark. A spinster, she had earned the respect of male businessmen in the community. Aunt Jenny will be modeled as Verena in the Glass Harp, being described in fiction as, quote, too like a lone man in a house full of women and children, and the only way she could make contact with us was through assertive outbursts. Dolly, get rid of that kitten. You want to aggravate my asthma? Who left the water running in the bathroom? Which of you broke my umbrella? Her ugly moods sifted through the house like a sour yellow mist. Within Truman's immediate family circle was a first cousin, Jennings Falk Carter. Big boy is his name, his nickname, whose mother, Mary Ida, was Lily May's sister. Big Boy spent summers and winter weekends at Jenny's house where he and Truman were inseparable. Their other close playmate was a rough and tough tomboy who lived next door to Jenny's house. She had short cropped hair, wore coveralls, went barefoot, and could talk mean like a boy. Her name was Nell Harper Lee, and she was to remain a lifelong friend. A hedge separated the two houses, and Truman, Big Boy, and Nell slipped through gaps in the hedge to visit back and forth. Mostly it was Nell at Jenny's house, where they told fantasy tales with Sook. This is Truman and Jennings' eccentric cousin, kind of a grandma figure, hold on for Sook snacked on tea cakes and coffee in the kitchen, and romped and played away precious childhood hours. Sook was Jenny's eldest sister, a childlike woman who probably suffered from agoraphobia, 
an abnormal fear of being in public places. She concocted herbal medicine from a secret recipe given to her years earlier by her mother, Samantha. Samantha got the recipe from some Romani people, we would say now, changing this language just a little bit. Samantha gets the recipe from Romani folks after she dares enter their camp in the midst of a terrible illness, nursed some of them back to health, and helped bury those who did not make it. The recipe was the only possession Sook could claim as hers alone. Sook will be modeled in fiction as Dolly Talbo in The Grass Harp. Continuing from Motes, although Truman painted an idyllic portrait of Sook in his writings, she was different in real life. In her early years, she owned a carriage and occasionally took it out to dig herbs or visit friends. But in the years Truman lived with her, she had become a recluse, hiding in the shadows of the long hallway. If a stranger came, she ducked out of sight. She never went outside the confines of the yard. The farthest she would venture was into the chicken yard to gather eggs, and this was but a few steps from the back door. But like the character Dolly Talbot, Sook had endearing qualities. Quote, About all natural things, Dolly was sophisticated. She had the subterranean intelligence of a bee that knows where to find the sweetest flower. She looked around her and felt what she saw, unquote. Some family members say that Sook had a fever in her childhood, which robbed her of her hair and left her rather simple-minded. Pictures of her in later life show her with hair. Family members recall that she was rather quick-minded concerning those things she felt strongly about. It very well may have been that she adopted the role of helpless child so that Jenny would take care of her. Sook was somewhat literate. From the time he was very small, Truman made Sook read the funnies to him. When she stumbled over a difficult word, he'd look it up in his pocket dictionary, and together they would figure out the meaning. Sook's relationship with Truman was very special. She was his nurturer and his friend. It was Sook who claimed Truman in her heart. He was her buddy, and she was his Sookie. Oh, the tales they told, the plans they made. They whipped meringue for banana pudding, baked tea cakes, and claimed the kitchen as their special place. And what a kitchen it was. Colin Fenwick in The Grass Harp remembered it too. Quote, If some wizard would like to make me a present, let him give me a bottle filled with the voices of that kitchen, the ha-ha-ha and fire whispering, a bottle brimming with its buttery, sugary bakery smells, unquote. Then they dusted and cleaned the house, read comic books, worked jigsaw puzzles, and rocked on the back porch. At night, when the sleepy little boy curled beside his sookie on the double bed, she stroked his blonde hair and told him tales until they drifted off to dream. This is Aunt Sook, Sookie. She's going to be so important to Truman Capote in his childhood and in his writing. Our Dundrop today is going to concern Aunt Sook and a little bit of that magic, that possession that she owns all to herself. We do have a few more characters, though, within Aunt Jenny's house. A few neighbors, too. Let's go ahead and talk about the rest of the Monroeville characters. Caroline Elizabeth Falk, this is Callie, also lived in the Falk household. 
For several years, Callie taught in a one-room country schoolhouse where she was exposed to a variety of children's learning abilities. In times when Jenny's store struggled, Callie was the one who had a steady income. Jenny insisted that Callie give up her job as a school teacher and go into the VH and CE Falk Millinery and Notions business with her. Jenny's wishes prevailed. A generous person, Callie would have seen the budding genius in young Truman. Each day after the noon meal, she practiced her charity by reading to a blind neighbor, Captain Wash Jones. News of the Depression was on the front page and lively conversations were sparked by current events. Truman curled up on the sofa beside Callie, looking over her shoulder as she read to Captain Wash. A bright child, Truman quickly caught on, learning to read too. From her school teaching days, Callie would have known the dangers in this. Children were not supposed to get too far ahead of their peers back then. It made the others look bad. This was extremely frustrating to Truman, who once he started school, found it painful to sit through slow, dreary lessons when he had been reading newspapers since age five. Nell Harper Lee, Truman's next-door neighbor and childhood friend, zeroed in on Truman's predicament after she grew up, using it as a basis for one of Scout's dilemmas in To Kill a Mockingbird. Quote, If I didn't have to stay in school, I'd leave. Jim, that damn lady says Atticus has been teaching me to read and for him to stop it. Miss Caroline taught me writing and told me to tell my father to stop teaching me. We don't write in the first grade, we print. You won't learn to write until you're in third grade. Unquote. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of women. We have Lily Mae and Aunt Jenny and Aunt Sook and Aunt Callie. We have Nell Harper Lee, too. There is one male influence living within the household. Let's talk about Bud, Jenny's brother. Bud was 59, this is from Moats, when Truman came to live there. Bud is the one who had rescued Truman's grandfather, Arthur, and brought him home to Samantha after Arthur was orphaned. Bud did a little farming, but mostly stayed in his room smoking green mountain herb for debilitating asthma. Seems a little at odds there. Truman liked Bud, the big talker who called him Little Chappy. Bud was very much like Cousin Randolph in other voices, other rooms, although Truman never claimed so. Rather, he attributed the character of Cousin Randolph to a combination of two men, one, an elderly asthmatic invalid he met in Mississippi who smoked medicinal cigarettes, and another man, quote, obsessed with death, betrayed passions, and unfulfilled talent, unquote. Like Cousin Randolph, though, Cousin Bud was somewhat of a loser. His farm was barely successful, and if it had not been for the help of a colored man, John White, there would have been no cotton crop. He refused to ride in an automobile, opting instead to walk his fields and back every day. He had lost his health. He coughed, choked, and struggled for air in a cold room because he forbade anyone to light a fire in his bedroom, even in the coldest weather. Why he was like this is not known. The family merely accepted it as, quote, that's the way Bud is, unquote. He lit Green Mountain Herb in a saucer and sniffed it for relief from the asthma. He slept in his clothes because if he were to be up in the night walking the halls, he thought it improper not to be dressed should one of the women get up. Believing his sisters, Jenny, Sook, and Callie needed him, he had long ago given up any hope of marriage and children and stayed at home to be the quote-unquote man of the house. 
So what is the truth? Moats queries. What kind of childhood did Truman really have there in the scruffy little town of Monroeville? And why was he drawn back there time and time again, even after he was jet-setting around the world with the rich and famous? Born into a new destiny, yes, but he was no less a southern farm boy. The smell of fresh-mown hay and cow manure lured him back, as did fond memories of his youth spent with his family and close cousin, Jennings Fock Carter, and their mutual friend and neighbor, Nell Harper Lee. It was, after all, the only family he had. Jennings Falk Carter remembers him as, quote, always the leader who dreamed up schemes for us to get into. He set the stage for these little episodes and played them out to the end. But his quick thinking could lead us out of the schemes just as fast. After an adventure, Truman, Nell, and I would gather back in the Chinaberry treehouse in Nell's backyard or escape to our other hideout underneath Jenny's house. There we'd have our debriefing. He'd say, What would have happened if we'd done such and such? Or, Big boy, why'd you say that? Nell, why'd you do that? Though we didn't know it at the time, all of this was training, leading him to develop as a writer the same as a dancer develops muscles. It was out here in the country, in the little area known as Drury, that Truman got to see the face of real poverty. Sometimes after their meals, there was food left to send to the black women and children who scrounged the woods looking for food to add to their diet of cornbread and milk. A tortoise roasted on the coals, some fish from the creek, or an occasional squirrel flavored the stew pot. Many a night, Bama served her family a dish of pepper stew. Flour browned in grease with salt, pepper, and water added. It was here on the Carter farm that Truman had black friends. Edison McMillan and Charlie McCants were often along when Truman Big Boy and their neighbors, Buddy Ryland and Dick Carter, no relation, fished, swam, rode mules, told tales, and played boyish pranks. In these later years, Truman and Big Boy realized that their childhood friend Nell was a female, so she wasn't with them too much during their teenage adventures. The town of Monroeville was strictly segregated in those days with the Negroes living in the Clausel quarters. But out in the country where the Carters lived, most of the Negroes were tenant farmers living on the farm where they worked and children mixed at work and play. That Truman lacked a positive male role model except for his uncle Jennings is an understatement. Virtually abandoned by his parents, he saw no marriages at Jenny's house. There were no positive role models in the neighbors either. On one side of Jenny's house lived Captain and Mrs. Wash Jones. He was a blind ex-military man who daily fought Yankees and demons and got around as best he could with a cane. Mrs. Wash Jones was an invalid in a wheelchair, eternally screeching at her husband for things she needed. Neighbors on the other side were the Lees, where Nell was the youngest of three children. Mrs. Lee was considered eccentric, judged by her habit of arising around 2 a.m., sitting before the big upright piano and banging out tunes that, in the summer months, could be heard all the way to the downtown square. Truman, however, felt a strong attachment toward Mr. Lee, who tried to spend as much time with his children as possible, but was preoccupied by his work as an attorney, legislator, and editor of the newspaper. Mr. Lee also worked crossword puzzles voraciously. As a child, Truman sat near him, looking over his shoulder, fascinated at the way 
letters strung together and would become words. And Mr. Lee, a man who stressed learning and education, took time with Truman in the evening. They made a game out of finding just the right letters to make words. It was Mr. Lee who gave Truman the cherished little dictionary that Truman religiously carried around in his pants pocket as a youth. Behind the Lee home was a shack where Anna Stabler lived. She was a mulatto and reportedly the illegitimate daughter of a local judge. Without connections to the white community, she would have been banished to Clausel. Since she had no teeth, she stuffed cotton in her jaws to help fill out her sagging cheeks. She stayed drunk on bootleg whiskey, twanged her banjo, and sang when she pleased. Truman was as fascinated by her as he was by Sook. Anna was the model for Catherine in The Grass Harp. How she is described here as Catherine, Anna is described as, quote, she lived in the backyard of a tin-roofed, silvery little house set among sunflowers and trellises of butterbean vine. She claimed to be an Indian, which made most people wink, for she was dark as the angels of Africa. Most of her teeth were gone. She kept her jaws jacked up with cotton wadding, unquote. Now, down the street lived the Bular family. Their son, a recluse, stayed hidden away in the house. Here was a real live boogeyman living within hollering distance of Truman's bedroom window. Like Truman, Nell Lee was fascinated by this character, probably using him as the model for Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm going to go ahead and sum up here, continuing on from Moats. Such was the hodgepodge of people immediately surrounding the impressionable child. Jenny, Sook, Bud, the Carters, Nell, and Anna, among others, found themselves in his stories. Truman claims that he felt lonely and isolated as a child, feelings not uncommon for abandoned, rootless children. But from the time he set foot in Monroeville, he was loved, at least for a few years, until he had played out his role as a dependent, helpless child who needed nurturing and shelter. Sook adored him. Even Jenny cared for him. Although his aunt, Mary Ida, was married, she found some time for him in her home. He had friends and playmates and enjoyed the role of idol to his pals Nell and Big Boy. As long as Truman was small, dependent, and helpless, the Falks would nurture and love him, even if his mother would not. That was their family trait. But the little boy had to grow up and become a man. His writing became the merciless master. And as he grew into manhood, one by one, almost everyone around him eventually rejected him and his lifestyle. He tried on many occasions to win back a place for himself within the close family circle, but it seems the harder he tried, the greater the gulf grew between them. As a consequence, Truman became vindictive at times and found ways to lash back. Says Jennings Falk Carter, his memory was very long. Oh my, Monroeville, and what a story. Want to take us out with just a little bit, again about Harper Lee and set her into our stage. Nell Harper and Truman get to be friends when he's about six. She's two years younger. He is living with his aunts, and Nell for Truman is sort of a guardian angel. She is his first friend. She is his protector. They are both curious children, delighted by 
the play of writing and words. This will bond their friendship in early days here and will continue throughout their lives. We are in the very beginning stages, but these two children love words and writing and make-believe. And it is Nellie's father, Mr. Lee, that gives them an old Underwood typewriter. Oh, what do we do in small southern towns when there's nothing else to do and you're a child with an active imagination? Well, you're probably going to write about it, which Truman and Nell both do. They write about all of these characters they grow up with in Monroeville in their works of fiction. And it's easy to trace the origin stories when you know. This episode is going to take us through Truman's early years, those spent again in Monroeville with family and neighbors, old and young. Truman will be recalled by Lily Mae, Mama, to New York City once she lands herself a rich husband in the form of Joe Capote. That story is coming for you next week about Truman and his time in New York City and Greenwich, Connecticut, too meeting and collecting a few more in his coterie. It is Truman Capote's going away party from Monroeville that is actually the origin story for Nell Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. That story is coming for you on Patreon this week and you're not done yet episode. And Patreon friends, all of you stay tuned. You're done drop coming at the end of this episode we'll explore a little bit more of the life and influence of Aunt Sook to our young Truman. There is so much more to explore over at patreon.com slash done and done. If you're looking to get a little bit more in your investigation, don't forget there are a few free episodes as well that I've taken out from behind the paywall. You can get those at tinyurl.com slash Free done, F-R-E-E-D-U-N-N-E. Thank you, everybody, for listening and spending your time with me today. Thanks for telling your friends about Done and Done, your kind emails and reviews, and your support on Patreon. Y'all are simply the very, very best. Until we meet again for our next episode of Capote's Coterie, stay curious, friends, and keep on investigating. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.